Bonjour. Guten Morgen. Gesundheit. Druck die Daumen. De donde eres tu? Je ne sais pas. Passiva. Sembra interessante. Cayete, por favor. Atahaish. Simul Justus et Peccator. NRK ain halagas. Kai halagas ain prostantheon. All of that roughly translates to we need to ship doors to the charismatic church down the street. <laughs> We're feeling very uncomfortable with his speaking in tongues. The study of languages is fascinating. Amanda Garnier, my summer youth intern, is double majoring, right? And she's studying linguistics with one of those majors at William & Mary. And she knows, as does the rest of the France missions team, that I'm not so good with learning new languages. Despite all those, you just got all my foreign language that I know, I think. Um, I can read, you know, the Greek and Hebrew, but speaking it, when we went to France, uh, they actually... St- started making fun of me. <laughs> I know you can't believe that, but I, I, I was pretty much the only one that didn't know French, so I was trying. I tried to pick, pick up a few phrases, but inevitably what came out was one of those phrases I just gave you, spasiba or gesundheit. Or, I, didn't, I never had it right, so they started calling it Davelish. <laughs> but... Language, we've got some time today. We're going to look at the biblical account. If you've ever wondered where languages came from, whether humans were always speaking different languages, we're going to find out how that all happened. The text, the biblical account of Babel, which we've worked up to in now Genesis chapter 11. And this story, this account is another Reminder in these early chapters of Genesis of how humans can't seem to get it right. They continue to sin flagrantly. A God, God has already punished them with physical death, spiritual death from the fall. And so we, we see here how this God, who has promised never to flood the world again, has already punished them severely, how is he going to respond to this new wave of sin after the flood? So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. 
And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, all, they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Even I could have majored in linguistics at that point. But a diligent reader, the one who listened carefully, especially last week's sermon, will be quick to say, wait, I remember from, verse, from chapter 10, we read that different nations had separate languages. And you would be right. Verses 5, 20, 31 from chapter 10, we're talking about the descendants, the tribes that came after Ham, Shem, and Japheth, Noah's sons. And they all had their own languages. And yet the beginning of chapter 11 says, now the whole earth had one language. How can this be? An apparent discrepancy in the scriptures. No. Easily solved. Uh, Moses is not here saying now in chronological order. He's bringing our attention back and bringing out one of the stories from that long list of descendants that we had just seen. I don't think he wants to interrupt those lists to, to give this story, but now he's getting to it. And it most likely fits, if you remember back, in the story of Nimrod, chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. I know Dave spent some time on that about he was a hunter. The text also says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and he lists a few other, we think, cities, in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. And so both Babel and Shinar are now mentioned in chapter 11, and we know that he was a builder, so it makes sense. For some reason, Moses doesn't make it clear, so we're not sure exactly. Uh, but certainly, as our ESV Reformation Study Bible footnotes tell us, Jewish tradition identifies him as, as the most likely builder of the Tower of Babel. And we do this all the time, don't we, when we tell stories? If I was to tell you about our mission trip to Iowa, I would say, I would probably give you the overview first and say, yeah, we got there on a Saturday, and then we worshiped with them, got set up on Sunday, we worked Monday through Friday, we came back the next Saturday. I'll give you the overview. But then I say, oh, but you need to hear some of the stories that came out of it, how we spent all day Friday digging this pit, and it was horrible. And uh, earlier in the week, I broke this guy's table and left him a note, and then he called me, and it, would, it was a great conversation. Um, so we do this all the time. I think that's what Moses is doing here. He's pulling this out and saying, you've got to understand where, what's happening with Noah's descendants. There's so much going on in the original Hebrew. I, I don't want to spend much time. I, I just want to assure you of that. I read once read an exegesis paper on it that was written by another pastor in our presbytery. 
And I was fascinated. I had not realized all of the ways that Moses does these word plays and alliteration and uh, nuances of similar words. And it just shows Moses as this master storyteller that is drawing attention to details. So I don't want to spend much time on that except to point out that, that the Hebrew word from Babel sounds like the word for confused or folly. So it's certainly the most appropriate. We see that over and over in the Old Testament. And I also want to show you one thing that Moses does to remind us that this story is about reversal. The Lord has an uncanny way of stepping in the middle of situations that are headed one way and turning them exactly the other way. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, There were a few commentaries that laid out what is called a chiastic structure. And if you were here for Dr. Dave's uh, sermon, one of his sermons on the flood, he explained how Moses had written the flood narrative in a chiastic structure. And so here we have it again. And you see, it might have leapt off the page to you. It didn't, for me, the first few times I read the story of the Tower of Babel, but it starts in the first couple verses. They're unified language. They live in the same place. And they communicate. They come together with, come up with a plan. And then they decide to build the city and the tower. But then verse 5, God intervenes. And halfway through, everything reverses. And it parallels exactly backwards. And God says, we, I see the city and the tower. And I want to counter their plans and disrupt their communication and and send them out and confuse their language. Just to show you a little bit of what a great writer Moses is. Notice also uh, there's three times that the phrase, come let us. So look back in your Bibles or your outline. Verse 3, the builders are saying, come let us make bricks. And then the next verse, verse 4, come let us build a city and a tower. And then what you might have missed is God uses the exact same phrase, come let us go down and confuse. And I believe that's a very intentional way to mimic what they're saying and to show that he will be overruling their plans. This is the fourth story in Genesis And we're starting to see a bit of a pattern. Think of the fall and the first murder, Cain and Abel, and the flood, and now Babel. We have this cycle of sin, God's pronouncing judgment, extending grace in the midst of that judgment, and then executing judgment. And I believe Moses is teaching his readers that Human beings are addicted to sin. We cannot stay away from sin. It doesn't matter what we've suffered as consequences. We want our way. And God judges them, but he always does so with grace. Where do we see grace in this story? I may be jumping a little ahead, but we're going to get to some of these other parts. But... I wanted to point this out because you don't see it immediately. 
But in confusing their languages and in scattering them, God still keeps them in groups. He doesn't isolate them. And he certainly doesn't wipe them out, which a sovereign king would usually do and had every right to do to those who rebelled against him. And in scattering them, he's even helping them fulfill what he had originally called them to, populating and filling the earth. Isn't today's society a lot like Babel, like those builders? Modern science and technology can make unbelievable boasts. We can split an atom. We can connect people all over the world on a phone where we can watch each other. Going around the world used to be unthinkable, and then it was astonishing to be able to do it in 80 days. And now you can do it in a day or two. We can find out news that happens across the globe minutes after it happens. We think that if we just keep developing technology, if we keep building and inventing, we can solve all of our problems. But perhaps the Tower of Babel gives us a caution. What is the sin? What were the sins of the tower, the builders of the Tower of Babel? Some, some people have seen this as an attempt to attack heaven. They kind of read between the lines there and say, well, we've got this tower reaching to heaven. They were trying to storm the gates of heaven. And we know they're shaking their fists at God, but are they, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of evidence for this. I think more likely there's two root pro, uh, sin two root sin issues that God is judging them for. Number one, not hard to see, the the pride, the arrogance that would seek to make a name for themselves. And number two, the fear of being spread out over the whole world. And that goes kind of hand in hand with disobedience to God's command to fill the earth. Remember the creation mandate? He had given it to Adam. Then he had repeated it to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I don't think that just meant fill it with children, but spread geographically. It's a big world. Get out there. But no, they wanted to huddle together. Did you hear the fear in verse 4? Let's build this city, let's build this tower so that we will not be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You might skip right past that and not realize that that is thumbing their nose at what God has called them to. John Piper, who I quote a lot, and I will continue to, kind of sums it up. Building a city is the way one avoids being dispersed over the whole earth. And building a tower into the heavens is the way one makes a name for oneself. So the city and the tower are the outward expressions of the inward sins. And that's how disobedience often works, isn't it? We either have fear on the one hand or pride on the other or both. Remember, fear motivated Israel 
to not trust God and to constantly turn to the neighboring nations for protection. And they would go get help from Assyria and then wonder why Assyria was enslaving them. Got him in so much trouble. Fear kept Peter from acknowledging knowing Jesus on the night of his crucifixion or the night before. Fear keeps me from loving my neighbor. Fear keeps us from being generous and from investing in God's work instead of hoarding it for ourselves. We are afraid we will run out and that God will not provide for us. Fear keeps us from being salt and light wherever we are and standing out from the crowd. And then we have pride. Pride relying on our own strength. Doing things to make people notice our accomplishments and our great character qualities. Pride kept Pharaoh from releasing the Israelites until God beat him down and he had no other choice. Remember the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. Elisha told him to get rid of your leprosy, go wash in the Jordan. Too much pride for that. Jordan, I'm not going there. Till a servant convinced him to humble himself. Pride makes me jealous of other people. Pride makes us feel like martyrs when no one notices what we do. Pride drives us to try to accomplish and achieve and to make those our idols so that others will praise us. We could have entire sermons. We could probably have a sermon series on each one of those topics. But the bottom line is that you and I would do well to search our lives, to see where we stray into sin because we're too afraid. We're afraid of not being able to control our lives or we are too prideful that we want to have our egos stroked. Fear and sin, I mean, sorry, fear and pride were the sins of Babel, and they are still with us. Verse 4, the builders said, let us make a name for ourselves. How are you trying to make a name for yourself? the lore of having our name in lights or in the headlines or knowing that our names will live on after we die. That is a great allure. It appeals to us. Yes, I would like to be known. And this story, certainly in the light of God's greatness, in the light of God's ability to blot out whatever ridiculous ways we try to pump ourselves up. Those things should look silly. And yet, we do it. Every one of us. We want to be known in, in whatever field we're in. Whether it's business, or medicine, or religion. Yeah, even, even pastors want to be known as planting the most successful, or the most biblical, or the most radical, or the most whatever. Church, we want to be known and praised for that. We want to be the best in our sphere of influence, the coolest kid on the block. This summer, the teens are going to be studying 
a work by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. The themes from that. We're breaking into regional small groups that I'm really excited. And the main theme of this book, and that doesn't mean you can skip your small group, kids. The main theme that he brings over and over is that making God's name great, glorifying him, is to spend your life well. But to pursue your own agenda and try to make a name for yourself will be a spectacular waste of your life. Making a name for ourselves is ultimately counterproductive because we will not be known unless we are recognized by God. Do you know that God does say to people, I will make your name great. It's not that our names won't be made great, but it's in submitting to him and obeying him. We're going to see in the very next chapter of Genesis, he tells Abraham, or Abram, I will make your name great. And in 2 Samuel 7, he tells David the same thing. And we know that Philippians 2 says, Jesus received the name that is above every name because of his obedience to God the Father. And finally, Revelations 3.12 tells believers that the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city, and my own new name. And ultimately, the only thing that matters about our names are whether they are written in the Lamb's book of life. That God has recorded that Christ's blood covers us and that we are one of the redeemed who will spend eternity with him. Let's get back to the text in verse 5. Did you mention, did you, sorry, notice, catch the sarcasm of verse 5? It just said, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. These men think that they've been building the most impressive project that is reaching to the sky. And yet, God has to come down to earth to see this minuscule work that they thought was so great. It's so tiny, he can't see it from heaven. I mean, we know that God is everywhere and God knows everything that's happening, but I think this is Moses' way of saying, it's ridiculous to God. He has to come down, lower himself just to see it. Of course, they didn't know back then what we know about the universe about our world even, that that any city on earth is just a tiny fraction of a medium-sized planet in one of many, many galaxies in an expanding universe. We know, we should know, when we hear that, that we are tiny, infinitesimally small. But we still like to think of ourselves as a big deal. And the crazy thing is that the Lord of the universe still knows us, still attends to us, still cares about our lives. To verse 6, the second half, I always wondered about the second half, especially as I've just kind of presented that the Lord is laughing uh, or 
making fun of this project, but he says, God says, nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. It sounds to me, I used to wonder if God was really threatened by the power of these humans. But in other parts of the Bible, God's reaction to human strength and hostility is to laugh. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's not threatened by what they're doing. But I think he sees the potential for great wickedness and great multiplied oppression if they are allowed to continue this project and allowed to build all they want and accomplish all they want. So he takes and he works and he drives a wedge in between these people and they scatter. Again, John Piper, God knows the immense potential of human beings created in his own image. And he has given them amazing liberty to exalt themselves and design their own security system without trusting him. But there are limits. Thousands of languages and thousands of different peoples limit the global aspirations of arrogant mankind. It would have been great timing to have preached this sermon last week, but our schedule got thrown off a little bit. Last week was Pentecost Sunday. Uh, if you were paying attention, we, there was a song uh, that I actually took the tune All Glory, Lot and Honor and put the story of Pentecost in there. And the first lines say this, the followers of Jesus received the Spirit's power and spoke the tongues of nation, reversing Babel's tower. I don't know if you caught that last week when they sang it. But let's look at Acts 2, 1 through 11. This is the classic New Testament parallel to the account of Babel. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, Jesus' followers, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And the text continues. And I just wanted to draw attention to that. Do you see the parallels between Babel and Pentecost? There's a few obvious ones, but think of this. Think back to when God, I've been talking about the creation mandate and God calling the early people to fill the earth. So now we think of Jesus' great commission 
And he told his disciples right before he ascended to heaven, go make disciples of all nations. Well, at the beginning of this passage, are they out aggressively making disciples of all nations? No, they're huddled together. Right? Just like the builders of Babel, huddling together in fear. So again, God mixes up their languages. This time, it's not a curse. It's a gift. And rather than confuse them, as he had at Babel, these languages help them speak to all the different nations gathered there in Jerusalem. And God essentially multiplies their number and starts the church that day. The church grows and it and it moves, it spreads out of Jerusalem to the corners of the world eventually. But notice that God does not merge everything back into one language. We don't we don't see this full reversal of Babel. We continue to speak all kinds of languages. We continue to be divided by those differences. But the church is to be characterized by those who know that we have unity and commonality with believers, with true believers all over the world. Christ for all the nations, as the PCA just celebrated. We don't need to be threatened by those who are different than us and speak a different language. We can be united even in our scatteredness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that there is only one point at which men and women can be brought together and legitimately be made one in Christ, in God. Think about Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The church is a collection of individuals who come together and God is pleased when we can work together, when we are united in his purposes. It's the opposite of Babel, where they united in defiance of him. So let's think about the final reversal of Babel. Let's look at Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All of these different people in their diversity of languages will all praise the same God. There will not be confusion. There will be complete joy and unity and purpose as we spend eternity ruling and reigning with God. We'll have our city, the new Jerusalem, 
and it will put Babel to shame. May we be a people who long for the new heaven and the new earth where we will praise him in every tongue. And may we live now in unity with all true believers here on earth as we look to accomplish his purposes, not our own. May we put to death our own pride and fear so that we will make his name great. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for Moses faithfully recording it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that you record the great sins of history and your response, your punishment to them, but also your grace in the midst of each one of them. Lord, we take time now to confess that we are just like the builders of Babel. Even those who are redeemed in you, even those who claim the name of Christ, can still be so paralyzed by fear and swelled up by pride that we commit great sins and we seek after our own name. Lord, we take a few moments now to confess those sins of fear and pride and the way that they rule our lives and turn us away from you. Lord, we know that in Christ all our sins are forgiven. And we know that the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom. So we pray that you would give us the right kind of fear. And the right kind of pride that takes pride in proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. And proclaiming our great God, you who, you who hold all creation in your hand. And yet care for us who are tiny and small and insignificant. And yet you love us. And you save us. Lord God, thank you that we have a church where we work together to accomplish your purposes. Thank you for the invisible church, the all true believers in Christ throughout history, but now, today, all through the world. And even as we speak different languages, we serve the same God. God, unite us and help us long for the day when we will be worshiping you in heaven together. In Jesus' name, amen.